Well, morning, everybody. Good to see you. Um, so, yeah, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Caleb, and I'm uh, one of the elders here, one of the leaders here at Gateway Church. And uh, I have the joy this morning of um, kicking off a new series, so a new teaching series starting today. Uh, we are going to be spending the next few weeks, really all the way up until the, the kind of summer break, uh, looking at the books of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Um, and uh, with various different things will kind of crop up and we'll break it up a little bit. Um, but really, this is where we're going to be parking for the next few months. And uh, the series we are talking about is Hope and Holiness. That's the name of this series. And um, it is, those, are, those are just two of the big themes that will come through as we're looking at these, uh, these two letters together um, in the next little while. So uh, my, my task today really is to look at the first 10 verses um, of this, uh, of 1 Thessalonians, which is really the first chapter. And, um, and, and I want to, you know, I'll get into those verses, but really want to just take a step back and look at the letter as a whole, hopefully provide a little bit of context to know kind of what's going on, because the reality is that, you know, what we read as a book of the Bible in 1 Thessalonians, we have to realize is a letter. And when a letter is litter, written, a letter is written by a person to a person or a group of people. And sometimes it can be helpful just to, to try and think through who is behind this letter and who is on the receiving end of this letter. Uh, so the starting point is this is a letter written by Paul, the Apostle Paul. Um, it's certainly signed by Paul. Some people would, there's a little bit of debate as to whether it was actually Paul, was it somebody else pretending to be Paul? Um, I, I personally believe it was written by Paul, but even if it wasn't, I'm not particularly bothered by that um, because scripture is full of people who, who you think of Jacob, the character of Jacob, who uses a huge amount of deception and yet is used as part of God's plans anyway. It's in our Bible. It is good stuff. Uh, I personally would land on it being um, one of Paul's letters. And Paul wrote this letter uh, to a church in Thessalonica. I've got a map here um, just to kind of show you. Um, so this is the map of, of the kind of world at the time. So you will see Thessalonica up near the top, near Philippi. Um, and really, this is in, in what was known as Macedonia. This was the area um, known as Macedonia at the time. It would find itself now in modern-day Greece. And um, it's actually widely believed that 1 Thessalonians was the earliest book, earliest kind of writing we have in the New Testament. Um, so often, you know, we start, most of us probably would assume that um, you know, you start in the New Testament, you think, well, Matthew was probably written first, and it was, you know, compiled in chronological order. It's really not at all. Um, it, it, this is probably the earliest letter, the earliest book we have in the New Testament. You know, the gospel accounts, four gospel accounts of Jesus's life. You've then got um, the book of Acts, which is like a continuation of the narrative in the, of the early church. Uh, and then what you have is a whole bunch of letters, but they're not ordered in chronological, like when they were written. They're actually ordered for some reason in their length. Like somebody decided that that was the best way of organizing the New Testament was to start with the longest one and then, you know, lump all the letters to churches. But obviously, if there are le two letters written to a church, we'll lump those together and avoid the length thing. So it's, it's just a bit confusing. But anyway, this is the earliest letter uh, written in the New Testament, probably written between 49 and 52 AD, which actually was, when you think about it, was less than, potentially less than 
30 years, 20 years, sorry, uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, so these are very, very early works in the early church. I love that about our faith, that a lot of these writings we have, they're not written, you know, a hundred years after Jesus' life and death. These were written in the moment, like in the very early stages of the early church. And when it comes to context to help us understand a little bit about what, what might Paul be speaking into when he writes this letter, um, sometimes we have to go kind of outside of the, the Bible to look at other, you know, kind of things written at the time, historical books, um, to find out what was going on. Uh, what we have helpfully here uh, with 1 Thessalonians is we can look at the book of Acts. We can actually read some of the context that happened in the run-up to Paul writing this letter. And uh, just to kind of go back to real basics, for maybe, you know, for you, you're really new to faith and you're just really at the start of your journey here, that's absolutely great and we love having you with us. So I don't want to make any assumptions here. So when we talk about Paul um, writing, Paul is the guy who had originally been a Pharisee, um, part of uh, a strict kind of sect of Judaism. So he was a Jew, he followed the law of God, and they believed in, you know, they followed the letter of the law, but often they came in for criticism from Jesus for not, for missing, you know, they would follow the letter of the law, but they would miss the heart of the law. They would miss really the God who revealed himself through the law. And, um, and so Jesus actually has some really critical words of the Pharisees throughout the gospel accounts. And um, he uses some quite choice language even at times um, aimed in their direction. But, um, but Paul was one of these Pharisees. And um, even after Jesus' death and resurrection, there was obviously some opposition between the Pharisees and the followers of Jesus to the extent where Paul, as a Pharisee, took it upon himself uh, to essentially hound and harass the early church. So he would go from town to town persecuting these followers of Jesus, until one day Paul, this man, has an encounter with the risen Jesus himself. He is traveling along a road when he meets and encounters Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and everything changes in that moment for Paul. He goes from kind of, you know, obviously he didn't believe in Jesus' re resurrection and therefore just wrote the whole thing off, and then when he meets, I mean, if you're confronted by the, the resurrected Jesus, you're going to have to consider your position on the resurrection of Jesus, right? And so he does that, and he goes away, he studies, he spends time with um, Jesus's followers, and he comes to an understanding of this good news message that is at the heart of our faith. And then he goes on various journeys around the region, and actually for that time of history, he does quite a lot of traveling. Like, he, he, he gets himself about to a great degree. He has three major journeys. You might hear them called three, Paul's kind of missionary journeys. And uh, the time that he visits um, Thessalonica is actually as part of his second missionary journey. And uh, I think I've got a map of this one as well. Yeah, there you go. Um, so Paul, he's traveling at this point with uh, a man called Silas. <clears throat> and they travel um, from Judea, where all of Jesus' followers, really most of them are already, and, um, and he goes to Tarsus, which was actually Paul's home time. He goes on to uh, the West Midlands in Derby, apparently. Um, and then, 
Um, and then he goes on to uh, Lystra, where actually he's joined by Timothy. Timothy is a, a young man of kind of, he's got a bit of a, a really positive reputation, and Paul kind of picks him up and takes him on with him then for the rest of the journey. Um, but while they are there, they, he, Paul then has a vision of a Macedonian man, a man from this region, Macedonia, who is begging him to come. And so he changes his plans. God speaks to him mid-journey and says, I want you to come to Macedonia. So he does. So he goes to Philippi and it goes really, really well. Uh, he actually ends up in prison. And, um, and this is the story you might be familiar with where in Philippi uh, there is actually an earthquake and, uh, and he is able to escape from prison in Philippi, but they have, they've been really harshly treated in this town, Philippi. So they head on to Thessalonica, uh, where they're hoping for a better time. And we can read about this as to what happens in Acts chapter 17. And uh, you'll know I go on to talk about the next town as well, because it is relevant um, as well. So we're going to just read through Acts 17, starting at verse 1, and uh, to, to read about the story. This happens all before this letter is written. It says this, Paul and Silas then traveled through the town, oh, I hate these town names, traveled through the towns of Amphipolis, maybe, and Apolline, Apolline, yeah, that one, and came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue, as was Paul's custom. He went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. So we know he is there for at least three weeks, right? Three Sabbaths in a row. He explained the prophecies and, and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. So it would appear that this, this is happening because, you know, Paul is visiting a synagogue He's potentially working during the week um, as well, and no doubt we'll be having lots of conversations with people. But you have both Jews, people who are, you know, by birth, um, part of um, the, the Jewish race, but also some God-fearing uh, Greek people. So people who weren't Jews, but had come to faith in God, and, uh, and that included men and women. Um, verse 5, but for some of the Jews, sorry, but some of the Jews were jealous so they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. Went really well in Philippi. Paul moves on to Thessalonica, and here we are. He finds himself in the middle of a riot. Um, so what does it say? They attacked the home of Jason. We're assuming here that this is where Paul and Silas either had been staying, or maybe they'd even started, some people would believe, that they'd even started a little house church meeting in Jason's house. But whatever it is, they know that they might find, or they're hoping to find, Paul and Silas in Jason's house. But they didn't. Verse 6, not finding um, them there, they dragged out Jason. They can't find Paul and Silas, so they instead go for Jason. They drag out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council. This is what they said. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted. And <laughs> all over the world. You know, when somebody's like throwing accusations, it's like, well, let's go all in, right? All over the world, Paul is causing trouble. He's really not got that far yet. Um, but anyway, all over the world they shouted, and now they are here disturbing our city too. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. They are all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. Really interesting. So, um, so actually, 
what they're saying is, look, because we, there was a gospel already on the scene in Thessalonica, in this part of the world, and the gospel was Caesar is Lord, Caesar is King, and um, you had to profess allegiance to Caesar, but actually Paul is coming along and saying, actually, there's a, there's a different king we should be pledging allegiance to, and, and his name is Jesus. So they're able to say, actually, this is treasonous, what you're doing. By preaching the good news about Jesus, this is treasonous against the Roman Empire. Verse 8, the people of the city, as well as the city council, were thrown into turmoil by these uh, reports. So the officials forced Jason and the other believers to post bond, and then they released them. Verse 10, that very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. As a result, many Jews believed. It's interesting, the implication there is they searched the scriptures. They went, is this, is this true? Does this stack up? Obviously, their conclusion was, yes, it does. Because as a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men, a similar situation um, to that in Thessalonica. But when some Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there and stirred up trouble. It, it wasn't enough that they you know, started a riot in their hometown. They heard that Paul and uh, would moved on to the next town. They were like, well, we're going to go get him there as well. So they went, they sent some people, and they stirred up trouble there as well. So, verse 14, the believers acted at once, sending Paul onto the coast when Silas and Timothy, while Silas and Timothy remained behind. Those escorting Paul went with him all the way to Athens. Then they returned to Berea with, the inst- with instructions for Silas and Timothy to hurry and join him. So that's a little bit of, it's helpful, isn't it? There's a little bit of context. You can do that with quite a few of the New Testament books and the letters is you can go back and see some of the history. You can see some of how it had played out in the run-up to these letters being written. So what you have in this, uh, this town, this city of Thessalonica, is, um, is, is you've, you've got a, a very you know, young church who Paul has brought. We know he spent at least three weeks there. It could have been a lot longer than that. We don't know. Uh, but he spent at least three Sabbaths there teaching um, in the synagogue. Some of them have come to faith. And then there is this riot. There is a, a massive reaction to Paul being there, and he is chased out of town. So they're left on their own. Paul and his team have to move on. And, um, and these believers are left then in a very hostile city. I mean, can you imagine? This is, you know, try and place yourself in, in the church in Thessalonica. You have heard this message. Uh, you, you have been banded together, potentially in Jason's house, meeting, learning about who, who this Jesus was and what that means. But, but then these people who've taught you have moved on and you're left with this city of people where there are people who are stirring up trouble, causing riots, and trying to put people in prison for declaring that Jesus is Lord and saying, you're committing treason here. This is an incredibly hostile environment. And it's to these people that Paul is writing his letter. The, the common understanding is this was written anywhere between a few weeks to a few months after Paul's visit. It's fairly quick that he writes to them to 
encourage them. So we're going to read, we're going to go through these words together. And sometimes, I mean, if we had all the time in the world, I would have loved to have just then read through the whole letter because it's, it's written as a letter. It's, it's you know, it's, it's designed to be, to be heard all in one go. Maybe this week for you, it would be a good idea to just go away and, and kind of read through the whole thing. I would really encourage that. But we're going to just look at the first 10 verses here together today. Um, so, um, here we go, verse 1. This letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We are writing to the church in Thessalonica, to you who belong to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give you grace and peace. Verse 2, we always thank God for all of you and pray for you constantly. I, I, Paul often will start with this. It's just a you know, it's a traditional kind of way you start with thanksgiving. But it, uh, for me, what comes across is Paul's deep love for these churches. He says, I, we always thank God for you and we pray for you constantly. He's emphasizing here his deep love for them and how that works out in him praying for the church. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of three things, he points out here. Your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his people. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. Now, if you know the book of Acts, this will kind of ring echoes for you of how often the, the good news is brought to a new group of people. And Often, most times, immediately, they also experience the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not just a kind of, you know, a, a, an academic exercise of hearing the good news. And, and Paul seems to suggest this here as well. Like the Holy, there was, the Holy, this wasn't just, you know, you didn't just hear this, but also there was power from the Holy Spirit came upon you. He says this, and you know of our concern for you from the way we lived at what, when we were with you. So there was, some, there was something clearly about the way that they lived amongst them that demonstrated their concern. Don't quite know what that is. Maybe that'll get unpacked a little later. So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. Remember the severe suffering that they've experienced? This, you know, Jason has been, some of the other believers been dragged into court because of this. He says, so, you know, you received that message with joy in spite of the suffering it brought you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. As in, you know, Paul and his crew, they were not unfamiliar with being harshly treated because of the message that they brought to people. This was, this was just part, of, part and parcel of life for them and the Lord, as in Jesus. You know, the reality is that Jesus as Savior, he, you know, the culmination of his preaching this good news message was, was that he was killed. He went through severe suffering. And so what he says is, you're imitating both us as a team and Jesus. As a result, You've become an example to all the believers in Greece throughout Macedonia and Achaia. So there is a, you know, he's saying, he's kind of, you know, he's building them up here. He's encouraging them, isn't he? He's saying, as a result of this, this reception, the way you receive this message with joy, in spite of your suffering, you've actually become an example to believers all over. Verse 8, and now 
The word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. For, whenever, for wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. So uh, what we have here, you know, we, we've got, that's the first chapter. That's all we're looking at today. Uh, those first couple of verses are a, are a traditional greeting. And then there's this passage of thanksgiving. Now this greeting, let me just go back to it at the beginning. May God give you grace and peace. Um, I don't know about you, but that's a really familiar phrase in the New Testament. We get Paul or other authors greeting or finishing their letters off even with, with this, this phrase, grace and peace. And sometimes we can kind of overlook the meaning of these two words, but these are, these are loaded words. These mean a huge amount. So let's just pause here for a moment. The word grace, uh, in the original language that this letter was written in, it would have been Greek, and the word was charis. And um, it's a big word, and um, some of you, if you grew up in church, you might have heard, you remember the little acronym, uh, what is it, God's riches at Christ's expense, yeah, grace. Um, some people think of that. I came across this definition, which I love. This I'll, I'll go slowly with this because there's a lot of good, rich words in it. This was somebody's definition of that word grace. It says this, of the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtue. That's a, that's a good definition of the word grace, isn't it? There's so much packed in there. It's, it's God's kindness exerting his holy influence on them. He's, he's, he's turning them to Christ, keeping them, strengthening, increasing them in Christian faith and knowledge and affection. Have I got a typo on there? Yeah, Runner's laughing at me. Is it a bad one? Sorry? Crazy. <laughs> wasn't that a thing? That was the church down the road, wasn't it? Do you remember that? That they, the Anglican church down the road got a sign made for Easter by the guy who makes signs down the road, and, and he printed it, and it was Chris is risen for Easter on their thing. I've made the same mistake. Great. <laughs> so anyway, so uh, that's grace. So much packed into a word. And then this second word, peace. In Greek, again, it would be irene, and um, a little bit linked to the Hebrew word shalom. You might have heard of that used as a greeting, and it's kind of big word again, and this was the same person's definition um, for this word peace. The tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatever sort that is. So when Paul writes to a church and he says, may God give you grace and peace. This is a, this, these are big words. These aren't just, you know, kind of, oh, you know, hi, hello, how are you? These are big words. I honestly think that our, in our country, our greetings are pretty lame, right? In England, you know what? Hi. <laughs> what does that even mean? Hello. Or if you're from Yorkshire, kind of, it's just like a nod and a grunt, isn't it? Like, all right? <laughs> like, I, 
I don't know what it is. Around the world, there are some fantastic greetings on offer. So if you were to go to Tibet and somebody were to stick their tongue out at you, this would be a really warm greeting that would actually mean that they are coming in peace. That's a way of demonstrating that with people. If you were to go to New Zealand in a Maori culture, somebody might approach you if you were a visitor and they wanted to welcome you, and they would come face to face, nose to nose, potentially even foreheads to foreheads, and they would stay there for some time. And it would be a great honor for them to do that to you. If you were in Zimbabwe or Mozambique, um, you would clap as a greeting. So in Zimbabwe, apparently, um, somebody would come to you, the first person would clap once, and in response, you would clap twice to make that a friendly greeting. Uh, in Malaysia, I really like this one, when they, um, they, you would take somebody's um, kind of hand in yours, and you would shake it lightly, you would hold it lightly, and you would put your hand on your heart to demonstrate goodwill and an open heart to that person. Um, this one might weird you out a little bit. In Greenland or at Tuvalu in Oceania, you would actually sniff the other person's face. So in... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so in Greenland, apparently the Inuit tradition would be to place your nose and upper lip against someone's cheek or fo forehead and sniff. Uh, that's only in a very close relationship. However, if you went to the South Pacific island of Tuvalu, this would be done with strangers as a formal friendly welcome, you would press cheeks together and you would take a big, deep breath to welcome a visitor. Kind of makes high just a bit lame, doesn't it, really? So why don't you turn to somebody <coughs> with a greeting of your choice and greet them this morning. If you want to just go for grace and peace, you can do that. But do so mean it. Come on, I genuinely mean it. Turn. You don't need to sniff faces. But <laughs> we got some clapping. Well done. But wish them grace and peace today, maybe. <laughs> okay, I hope you all feel very warmly welcomed. If you're a little bit like COVID nervous and somebody sniffed your face, I'm really sorry. <coughs> or like forehead to forehead, that probably wasn't appropriate. Anyway, so there are, th there are a bunch of things here I just want to kind of pull out from those words. Um, after that initial greeting, Paul then goes into this, this, what would have been traditional in a letter written at the time, is that you start with a Thanksgiving um, kind of piece. And so he remarks on six things in this passage. I don't know if you picked up on that. He remarked on their faithful work, their loving deeds, their enduring hope, their receiving of the message with joy in spite of suffering, their wonderful welcome that they'd given to Paul and his friends, their turning away from idols to serve God, and their looking forward to Jesus' return. And as a result of these, in verse 7, what we learn is that as a result of this, this description of them, these, these positive things about them as a church, Paul says they've become an example to all believers everywhere. It comes through really strongly, doesn't it? He says, I don't, have to, I don't have to tell them about you when I visit these other places because they've already heard about you. There are some great stories kicking around about this church in Thessalonica. And um, I just think, what a great mix of things to be known for as a church, right? Your faithfulness, your endurance, your receptiveness to the good news, your hospitality, your turning away from idols. This is like full life transformation. It's not just 
tacking on faith in Jesus as an add-on to your normal life. This is full repentance turning to God and their future hope. I think those are great things for any local church to be known for. What's interesting to me is to ask the question, well, what isn't listed there? And it's not to say those things didn't therefore happen, but Paul doesn't remark on things like their success as a church, or, you know, he doesn't say, you're really well known for millions of salvations and baptisms and healings. That seems of less importance to Paul than their faithfulness, their endurance, their hospitality, the, the kind of basic building blocks of everyday life as a local church. This church in Thessalonica strikes me as a solid, faithful local church, even though they've not had the good news for that long. They're they're not particularly mature, but they're just solid. They're faithful. They are a group of people captivated by the good news message. They're being transformed by this message of grace, and they are responding and serving faithfully. So two things I want to kind of just draw out for us today um, to kind of wrap things up here, really. So the first is this, and we talk about this on Connect for those who are kind of on their way into life and family of the church here. And um, what I talk about is that there are a number of churches around, you might even know some, by example, who have a, a really clear narrow kind of vision or purpose or mission. So I tell the story on Connect of how I once visited a church down in Reading that said, we are going to do youth work and nothing else. We're just going to do that really, really well. So if you want to be part of our church, uh, then your time, your money, your energy, your prayers will all go to reaching young people. And that's what they did. I tell the story of another church that I know of who who really just run Sunday services and then small groups during the week. They don't do the social action stuff that a lot of other churches do. Instead, they hold a massive gift day once a year, and then they give that money away to other local organizations and charities doing that work. Now, there is, in my opinion, nothing wrong with that approach to church. In some ways, there is an appeal in the clarity of saying, well, this is what we do. This is solely what we do. Um, But it's not us. (laughs) It's not who we are as a church. Our vision is broad and wide. We want to be a people who proclaim and demonstrate the good news of God's kingdom. We, we, so, so that looks like all kinds of different things. That doesn't just look like, you know, super narrow mission. That looks like people coming to us and saying, I have a real heart for this. I would love to see this happening in our community. How about it? And we'll go, well, is it part of God's, you know, is it seeing God's kingdom come? Have you got enough people we should probably consider that. Like, we, that's why, that's how we've come to be the way we are. We're, we're probably less, we less emphasize the strategic and we more emphasize, well, it's about God's kingdom and it's broad and wide. And we want to release people into whatever it is God is calling them to, whether it's out there in the workplace or whether it's here running something that we might call a ministry one day. And so I, I think there's no bad thing in being a church that isn't like just known for one thing. Like this church here in Thessalonica seems to be, you know, it's just good and it's, but it's broad and it's wide. It's everything from hospitality to their full life transformation, to their endurance, to their faithfulness. Like it's not, it's not well done for this super narrow thing. And I think God would say the same to, to you, to us as a church. Like I see your heart. Like you are a faithful group of people who serve diligently, who give sacrificially, who show hospitality to people who are new to you, who endure when things get tough, who've stuck it out during these last two years 
that have been difficult. I think God would encourage you. And, 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 and I'm sure Paul would. You know, if Paul came and visited our church here and, um, for a little while and then went off and wrote us a letter, there'd be a whole bunch of stuff that he would encourage us with. But it would be broad and it would be wide. It would be, be a bit like this, I think. The second thing I want to really kind of pull out of this um, is that in, uh, in, in that final verse, in verse 10, Paul um, says to them, he says, and they speak, he's talking about the other churches that have heard about the church here in Thessalonica, and they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. I think, I wonder here, if what's going on is that in the face of great suffering and hardship, you know, this is a hostile place to be a local church. Maybe, maybe looking forward to Christ's return is, is the only thing giving them hope. Maybe actually day-to-day life is tough. Maybe day-to-day their, their experience of being a local church isn't great. They've had people sent before the city council. They've been accused of treason. They are a church being persecuted for their faith. And maybe the thing that, that keeps them going, that gives them that enduring hope that Paul talks about is that they are looking forward to Christ's return. They say, you know what, we're not seeing everything we want to see here now. We might be seeing glimpses of it, but, but one day we know God will wrap this whole thing up and there will be a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain. Maybe that is the thing that is keeping them going. And sometimes, maybe for you, here today. Sometimes faith in Christ, following Jesus, maybe sometimes it involves glimpses of God's coming kingdom. So maybe you see, I heard a great story recently of somebody's family member who came to a a really clear saving faith in Christ just months before they passed away. Maybe you see that kind of thing in part. Maybe you see healing and freedom, restoration, peace, prosperity. But maybe also for some of you, faith in Christ, following Jesus, involves suffering, hardship. It involves difficult decisions. All the while, the thing keeping you going is looking forward to Christ's return. Often, I would say it's, a, it's both, isn't it? Most of us will experience both. We'll experience some of the, 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 the foretaste of God's kingdom now. We see healing and freedom and salvation and peace and prosperity But at the same time, we live with hardship, with difficult things, with things that are just not easy to live through or get through at all. But the thing that will keep us going is fixing our eyes on Jesus, that one day God will wrap all of this up and Christ will return. And I think the other thing, just to kind of finish on that, I would want to pull out really is that, you know, we might think, well, it was really obvious the hostility that these guys experienced. You know, they, they were hauled before the leaders of the city council. They were accused of treason. Now, our, you know, I've never been hauled before the local city council and accused of treason, right? You probably haven't either. If you have, let us know and we'll pray for you. Um, but that's not the kind of hostility that we experience, is it? But, but what I would say is don't, let's not assume, therefore, that we don't experience any hostility or persecution as a church. Sometimes the, the, the outright, visible, evident 
persecution that a church experiences in other parts of the world can, can actually have a, a hugely positive impact because it's so obvious and, and they so have to rely day to day on the grace of God to get through. Sometimes, and, and often those are the parts of the world where the church is growing, where God's kingdom is advancing in tangible and obvious ways. Often that's how it works. And in our context, we just need to be aware that the hostility that you and I experience is often much more subtle, isn't it? Often it might be just that kind of fear of like, oh, in my work, I, I, I don't think I can even talk about my faith because there are consequences. If I, you know, if, if, if you work in for the public sector, if you work in a, in a school or in a hospital or a, you're a, you know, in healthcare, I'm caring for this person and my natural instinct would be I'd like to pray for this person, but, but, but there might be consequences here. That kind of hostility in our culture, I think it might be subtle, but we've just got to be really careful that it doesn't, it, it, we don't allow it to, to kind of squash our faith in Christ. We don't allow it to, to actually make us shrink back and keep our faith to just a kind of Sunday, something we do in our, in our private spiritual lives and we don't allow it to impact on our day-to-day lives. I don't have any simple, obvious solutions for those of you who are in those situations, but I just, my, my heart would be like, let's be aware of that. Let's be alert to the hostility that is around today. We're not being hauled before you know, authorities and sent to prison. We're not, that's not happening here right now. But there is a, a, a hostility, the impact that we need to be aware of and we need to be alert to because it could very quickly and easily become something that, that forces us to look more inward, forces our faith to kind of be put back in a box. So we've just got to be alert to that, I think, as well. That's maybe something we can learn from this church here in Thessalonica. So I'm looking forward over the coming weeks to us unpacking this letter, to hearing what else Paul has to say to the church in Thessalonica and how it relates to us today. I think this is, you know, the Bible is still super relevant to life today, even though it was written 2,000 years ago. And uh, we're looking forward to hearing this together. So uh, musicians, why don't you come up and uh, we're going to respond um, in worship and there is definitely you know there's time and space here for God to speak and for people to contribute and for us to respond to him Uh, but I'm just going to pray and then these guys will lead us in worship. Father God we thank you for these words written by Paul thousands of years ago that still bring life to us today and we can read them and we can learn and we can understand what does it mean to be a church and how do we respond with an enduring hope to hostility, to difficulty. And Father, I want to thank you for the encouraging words that Paul has for that church then. And I confidently know because when people come and visit this church here and they go off elsewhere, when a visiting speaker recently um, sent me a little message when I'd said thank you to them. They said, it felt like a home from home when I was amongst you. God, that's, that's amazing, and we celebrate that. We love that what you are building here amongst us as a church family. We love the sense of community that we get to experience here. We love those stories that Sarah shared earlier of people just dropping money through letterboxes when somebody's in need. 
we love that you know, food gets dropped off on your doorstep when you have a child or you adopt. We love that there are people here who are opening their homes to people fleeing from war in other parts of the world and they're demonstrating hospitality. God, I believe that you look upon this church, your bride, and it's not an arrogant thing to claim this. This will be true for many, many churches. But you see a faithful church serving you, giving generously, welcoming the lonely, creating community, enduring through difficult times of global pandemic, and coming out the other side as a church still keen to pursue you, to worship you, to honour you, to be led by you. God, we thank you for what you've done in us, what you've built in us here, but we want to pray that you would continue to do a good work in us. You would bring that work to completion, Father. God, we pray that you continue to build us as a church community together. For those who are maybe still feeling like they're on the fringes, coming out the back of this pandemic, feeling isolated from others. God, would you draw them into community and friendship and family here in this church. God, help us to regrow a culture of hospitality where that's taken a hit in the past couple of years. And God, help us to fix our eyes on eternity. Help us to be people who have a future hope. God, we experience hostility in a number of subtle ways. Help us to be alert to that and help us to be faithful to you, to be less bothered about the consequences of what being open about our faith might bring. Help us to trust in you, that you're going to be with us through any hardship that will come our way. Thank you for your faithfulness to this church in Thessalonica and to us here now in York. 2,000 years later. Thank you for your faithfulness, God. Amen.